You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. He's one of the most powerful businessmen in the world. On October 8th, the Washington Post Live hosted Blackstone Group Chairman, CEO, and co-founder Steve Schwartzman for a one-on-one interview about his best-selling new book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Let's listen. Well, good morning, everybody. And welcome particularly to Steve, businessman, business owner, private equity king, presidential advisor, philanthropist, and now writer, if the 100,000 or so words in this book are to be believed. So, so Steve, I mean, you're here in the Valhalla of journalism. Um, is that because you have decided to seek honest work and join us? Well, certain, certainly re- result in a pay cut. <laughs> OK, so uh, um, possibly. Uh, why, why did you write this book? Tell us a little bit about uh, what it takes and why, why you decided to undertake it. You had lots of things you could have done instead. Yeah, well, I, I started writing the book uh, as a result of um, a meeting I had in the Middle East with the head of a sovereign wealth fund who was a royal family person. And it was supposed to be a five-minute handshake. Uh, and instead, he's, he's, he started asking me about how he could run his organization better, uh, hire people. How do you hire people? How do you pay people? Uh, how do you look at the world? Uh, how do you do something which is technically called asset allocation, which is really where do you invest? What type of things do you invest in? Uh, and how do I see the world? Well, you know, this is pretty easy stuff for me. All I wanted to do was sell him our products. And I tried in the middle of the meeting, <clears throat> and he said, please don't sell me anything. Uh, I'm going to buy it anyhow. Um, I just want to know what you think. So that was a pretty surprising uh, meeting. It was about, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And um, then when I started going other places, the same thing happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, after about 25 of those meetings, because they each take a while, I figured, geez, if I wrote a book and just gave them the thing, I wouldn't have to talk about this stuff. <laughs> so so that, that's where the book came from. That's good. Now, the, well, let's start a little bit with the bio. You grew up in? Pennsylvania and Philly. Yep. Uh, you went to Yale, Harvard Business School. Uh, and by the time you're through you know, what most people think of as their formative years, you've learned um, pretty quickly that it's best to think, one of the things that's clear in the book, that it's great to think big. Don't think small. Um, but it's in sharp contrast to an experience you had when you were uh, with your father, right. uh, who ran a linen store. Um, and tell us about his, his worldview. It was a little different. Yeah, my, my, my dad uh, had a store that sort of looked like Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, but this was a long time ago, and there was no Bed Bath & Beyond. And I, I, I had to work there starting around the age of 10, and I was in charge of the ladies' handkerchief uh, counter. Uh, uh, n- not a particularly uplifting uh, or intellectually challenging uh, type of activity. Uh, and um, uh, you know, it was pretty clear there were a lot of people who came in the store on a regular basis. So I said to my dad, I said, Dad, it looks like you're doing pretty well. Uh, as a 10-year-old, you know, you don't know too much. But this was probably when I was about 14. And I said, why don't you uh, take the store and open it everywhere in the country? Um, I said, I think it could be really successful. And my dad looked at me, and he said, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I said, all right, well, um, let, let's just open it all over Pennsylvania. 
And uh, he said, I don't want to do that. I said, okay, um, how about we could probably put six or seven stores in Philadelphia? Uh, he said, I don't want to do that. I said, Dad, this is a winner. Why, why don't you want to do it? And he said, because I'm happy the way I am. I have a house. I have two cars. I have enough money to send you and your brothers to college. And I, I don't want any more, which, which I thought was sort of hard to take in because my dad was very smart, uh, certainly smarter than I am. Uh, and I, I just couldn't understand why he didn't want to go for it. But I learned that not everybody's the same. And his contentment is what made him uh, a sort of a remarkable human being. Uh, and um, uh, he's passed away. I wish he was still here. Uh, but, you know, it was an interesting learning thing for me. We'll come back to contentment maybe before we're done. There's a great passage early on in this book where you're <laughs> shopping for investment banks. He's not shopping to buy them. He's shopping to go to work for them. He's looking at six or seven right after business school. And he makes the rounds. And you finally decide on Lehman, which uh, he describes as which full of interesting characters, ex-CIA agents, ex-military, strays from the oil industry, family, friends, randoms, which I thought sounded a little like a newsroom. Um, uh, anyway, Lehman is your pick, but not before you make a visit to Goldman Sachs, where you conclude that they conclude that you are, quote, a little too much my own person. Now, what does that mean? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it was apparently a good thing for me because I didn't go there, but they didn't want me uh, because I, I had uh, uh, apparently too much of a you know, personality or something. Uh, and, and what you learned is uh, different organizations have different cultures, uh, and they don't like to stray much uh, from their culture. Uh, Lehman had uh, a different culture. Um, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. But my, my first day at work, um, you know, I, I got to the elevator. Lehman had its own building at 1 William Street. And, um, you know, elevator doors, which were made out of iron, sort of like a feudal castle, uh, opened. And somebody walked out. And he looked at me. And he said, um, oh, you're one of the new people. I said, yes, I am. And he said, you'll love it here. I said, well, I hope so. He said, he said, the reason you'll love it is that nobody here will stab you in the back. They'll just walk right up to you and stab you in the front. <laughs> so, so you can imagine going home from your first day at, wife and your, your, at work and your wife says to you, how, how was your first day? And I told her that story and she said, it's going to be an interesting career there. Uh, back, uh, you're, but you're a rocket at Lehman. You rise very fast. You're managing director at 31. Uh, and, but there's a fair amount in this book about what I think would be fairly described as, as early screw-ups, or at least missteps, where um, you're, you're called out for things in addition to uh, your, your, maybe you're a bad typist, I don't know, uh, typographical errors, but also for not sitting up straight in meetings. Um, uh, did these, uh, were these formative or were they just uh, random events that No, didn't... no, they're definitely formative. Uh, you know, my first assignment was a valuation of a company that made uh, airplane seats. Uh, apparently, I'm so old, you know, this was the introduction of jets. Uh, and uh, so they were selling a lot of seats and that company was sold to someone and then 
things sort of collapsed in the recession uh, at that time, uh, and people were suing each other, and we were hired uh, to give evaluation. Uh, and um, so, so I thought my whole career hung on the outcome of this first assignment, and I wrote some sort of a 75-page analysis for an older man named uh, Herman Kahn, mm -hmm. uh, who was hard of hearing. Um, and, and so when he spoke on the phone, it was like, you know, you, you could keep it far away from you. And um, so, so I got that assignment, and I went to give it to him. He wasn't at his desk. I left it on his desk. A few hours later, uh, you know, he calls, and he says, is this Steve Schwarzman? I mean, it's like booming. I said, yes, it is. Uh, he said, this is Herman Kahn. You have a typo on page 56. <laughs> I, I worked on this thing for like two months. That was the only feedback I got on, on this assignment. Yeah. So when you say, was that formative? Yeah. Um, I, I never give anybody anything that isn't perfect. And at our firm, uh, Blackstone, it's the same rule. Uh, and so this really twists you from, you know, in college an A is, you know, sort of it's an A, but, you know, could be a 94, could be a 92, could even be a 91. In our world, it's, yeah. it's, it's got to be 100. I, I had another one, which was like even worse. Uh, you know, this, this was just light. But, you know, and this kind of stuff happens to almost everybody at some point. But, um, you know, I, I did a statistical analysis for one of the uh, partners who was probably seven years older than I was. And, um, um, you know, it's a whole series of spinning off a company or taking it public. And, you know, it's it reams of numbers on different alternatives. So, so at that point, you only had one partner, one associate, none of this army of people. And, and so I did all the work and we were on the plane uh, and um, you know, the, the partner who was sitting next to me starts going over the analysis. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm looking at him and his face starts scrunching up a bit and uh, keeps turning pages. And he said, he said, you know, there's a statistical error here. Uh, in your analysis. In my analysis. Yeah. And it, it was running through, of course, it, it touches a lot of the pages. And, and he said, look, half of these pages are wrong. Uh, you know, half of them are right. I can do the presentation to this board of directors um, with the ones that are correct. Just take out the other ones. And so, you know, I was just so just upset about the whole thing. So I ripped the stuff out. And we got to the meeting. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he handed out the, the brochures and, 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 you know, started going through it. And, I was, I was so flustered by failing that I had taken out the good pages. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you've ever seen a human being in a suit look like he was swimming across a boardroom table to get all these things back. And um, I, I can only say that the ride in the taxi going back to the uh, airport was somewhat chilly. <laughs> and, <laughs> We, we were sitting next to each other in the lounge, uh, you know, right until the plane was called. Not a word was spoken. And he said, if you ever do that to me again, you're fired. 
So, never happened again. But these are the learning types of things when you're a young person. You and Pete Peterson break away from Lemon and start Blackstone, and you spend months planning and organizing it, uh, and start, you start to raise capital, but it doesn't come easily. Uh, in fact, you say that you made your, uh, this is a, a, an interesting lesson, you made a mistake by asking your friends for help first. Yeah. One of the mistakes you almost always make uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur uh, is you come up with a concept uh, and you want to make easy sales, so, so you go to the people you know best. Uh, this is a horrific idea. Uh, it's psychologically comfortable. It's totally logical. The only problem is you don't realize how bad you are uh, because let's assume they're pretty uh, informed. Uh, always a good thing to assume uh, that somebody else is informed. Uh, and, and they start asking you questions. And if this is like your first shot, um, you, you don't know all the answers. Or you thought you did, but then they ask you things you don't know. So as soon as that starts happening, the person who does the asking completely loses confidence in you, and they don't give you anything. You should actually see that person as like your 25th presentation. Mm -hmm. Because by that time, you know, somebody else has put you through your paces. So, so there's some counterintuitive things when you start. Sometime in the mid-'80s, you, uh, you almost got to work for Jim Baker. Uh, here in yeah. Washington. Uh, and Baker's staff was, as many people know, is one of the best anyone had seen in years since Kennedy, maybe since the New Deal. Uh, yet you turned him down. How come? Well, what happened is um, I had a non-compete after I sold Lehman uh, to um, American Express. And, and uh, Jim Robbins is a very nice guy. I uh, was the head of uh, American Express, and he called Jim. Uh, and um, so, so I moved to Washington. and. and you know, work at the White House. I thought this would be really exciting. Uh, and um, so I met him, and then he passed me on to Dick Darman, who passed me on to Dave Stockman, who ultimately joined me at Blackstone as a partner. And, and so uh, everybody was ready to go. I was going to be the number four person uh, on that team. And, and then I got a call to say that he was switching jobs with Don Regan. Uh, and um, uh, and, and everybody was, in effect, going uh, with him. And, and they recommended uh, I not stay and, and try and work uh, for Don Regan because he, they said that, you know, uh, there were going to be problems, uh, which, of course, uh, there ended up uh, being. So, so they said, would you like to work at the Treasury? I said, well, what, what would be the job? They said, well, you can be Assistant Secretary for Debt Management. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know anything about debt management. I, I said, so what do they do? Uh, they said they, they, re, they refinance uh, the U.S. debt and issue bonds. So um, I said, well, how long has that position been vacant? Uh, the answer was two years. I said, you obviously don't need a human doing this work since they kept issuing bonds the whole time. So I said, I don't think this is for me. Uh, and that was um, your close call. Yeah, that was let's, my. Let's talk about China, because there's a great deal in the book about China and your work right. on behalf of the administration in China. Um, and, it's, and, and it starts with a, an interesting story. You told President Xi in early 2017, the book says, 
that what you thought, according to some estimates by the Fed, as many as one half of all Americans could not write a $400 check in an emergency. Um, and you conveyed that to President Xi as a way to convince him to reset, that is change, uh, the U.S.-Chinese relationship, particularly with respect to trade. Uh, the book says that he heard that uh, and agreed, in fact, proposed the reset, yet here we are three years later, we haven't had a reset yet. How come? Well, that's a, that's a, um, a good question. Um, basically, he was asking about, you know, how President Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I described it was 40 percent, uh, not 50. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Americans were really uh, having a very difficult time. And, and in effect, uh, there was a surprise outcome. Uh, and um, it was a surprise to everyone, uh, uh, ex except maybe the person who was running. Uh, and I, I said, as a result, um, you, you're going to be faced uh, with um, a variety of uh, requests to to basically change, modify your system just because, you know, your second biggest economy in the world, you're growing at three times the rate, uh, and um, um, and that's great for a you know developing uh, market economy, much like the United States uh, in the 19th century, uh, where we had high tariffs and other things, but but things change. Uh, you're now second in the world, and there doesn't appear to be a third or fourth. I mean, you're so big. And um, the, the, the U.S. and China actually together, depending upon who's doing the measurement, which measurement, are between 35 and 40 percent of the entire world's economy. People have no idea how big this is and how consequential it is. And I, I said, you know, uh, you're probably going to think that um, that, that the request for change is, is coming from a, a person, but it's not really. Uh, it's coming from a country. Uh, and whether that person's there or not, um, that, that the country, if we don't solve these kinds of problems, will, will, will continue to feel the same way or more passionate. Uh, so, so there's no alternative uh, other than making adjustments to be more like a developed world economy. And, and he said, I didn't know those facts. I said, that's all right, we didn't either. I said, everyone who predicted the 2016 election was wrong. So don't, don't think you have bad staff work. Uh, we didn't know, so, so there we are. Uh, but now you're facing a structural need for change. And I said, this is happening all over the West. It's, it's just not an American issue. And, and so he said, I, 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 he said, assuming you're right, he said, which I assume you are, um, we're, we're going to have to make a you know, significant adjustment. And do you think they want to make it? Or? I, th I, think, I think they do. Um, uh, it's an interesting situation. He, here's a country uh, that in 40 years has, has gone from a few hundred dollars uh, per capita GDP uh, to $10,000, and it's going up 1000 a year. It's pretty amazing. It's probably the most remarkable um, economic uh, growth uh, for, for a giant-sized country in world history in that kind of period. Uh, and, and so their system is not open the way ours is. It has 
higher tariffs and taxes, uh, sort of a three to one uh, basis compared to you know them coming, bringing goods in here, uh, and you know sort of um, uh, limited market access, um, all kinds of restrictions, intellectual property issues, a whole variety of things uh, that 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 need to be uh, adjusted, uh, and. Um, they, they have, as we've found out, uh, internal politics. We, we view China as a monolith um, run by just one person. Uh, China's a big place, a uh, billion three people. Um, uh, and they have their own standing committee, which is their senior uh, leadership. Uh, and, and, and they have uh, what I guess we would call in English uh, reformers who want to make these adjustments, and they have hardliners who say, look, we've been growing at you know, these enormous rates. Why should we change? It's good for us, and we're not so rich. Uh, and, and so what you're seeing in these discussions um, is, is, is you're seeing you know, China showing up with, with sort of slightly different hats at different points over a, Two and a half year period, uh, and you know sometimes uh, they, they change what they were thinking, and it's not the people that you meet with, um, you know it's it's their system. So I, I think you know nobody nobody just drops a system, and and, and so you're going to have over time changes, uh, but but you know having them instant. Uh, you know, is, is, is not going to happen. You've said, you said in the book you've made eight trips on behalf of the administration to China. That was at the time of the writing of the book. Have you made more since? Yeah, sure. Um, I, 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 go over, I go over for other reasons, too. I started a school uh, in China. It's a lot like the Rhodes Scholarship. It's called the Schwarzman Scholars at uh, Chenhua University, which is their number one university. So I go over for that. Do you think the Chinese need more um, whispering about uh, well, let me phrase it carefully. Who needs the uh, Schwartzman whispering more, the Chinese to understand the Americans or the Americans to understand the Chinese? Yeah, well, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, but but uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's um, really uh, impossible for uh, an outsider uh, to um, deal with the internal um, politics of, uh, of China. This is, that's there. That's their situation, and, and you know you, you can describe to them the consequences uh, of uh, decoupling. Uh, that, that it's not, uh, in my view, in any case, uh, in in their interest, uh, and you know they, they they can take that on board, but you know you're powerless to do anything um, uh, in. in you know, to influence things more than giving your views. Given what you know about both parties, do you, would you say that we are getting closer to a deal or getting further away from it at the well, moment? Well, actually, it's been r really um, unusual that, um, you know, in May, uh, was in, in the close to the deal pile. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think everybody knows that story that, you know, you had roughly 150 pages and you know, like a third of them disappeared uh, a few days before their group was scheduled to come over, and you know they obviously changed their mind. Uh, and, and, and then, as there usually is uh, between these two countries, there's a 
uh, a period where you know, they withdraw and try and figure out where they're going next, and you know that's why they're coming over. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in, in a way, um, it's it, it, it's it's a great reveal. Uh, you know, when they come over, coming over Thursday, Friday, I guess, yep. and you know we'll know what happened backstage because we'll see it uh, on the front stage, and I'm not sure anybody knows exactly. Uh, what that'll be? Who or what is coming? Excuse me. You don't. You aren't sure who or what is coming. Well, I, I know who's coming, yeah, who. but I, you know, uh, exactly what'll be put on uh, the table. Um, is is it? Do you believe that a, a small deal might be advisable before a big comprehensive deal? There have been talk about um, a sort of a down payment. I, I think that's up to the president. Um, Would you favor he, it? He's, he's got to figure out, you know, whether that's uh, of interest. Um, uh, has Hong Kong made this deal more likely or less likely? I think, I think it's made it um, um, more likely uh, because, um, you know, China's facing a lot of significant issues and, and Hong Kong because it has some link with Taiwan uh, in terms of the Taiwanese watching what's going on in Hong Kong is like um, that, that's in the uh, super important uh, um, category, uh, uh, trade, um, everybody knows what they can do or not. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't think trade is as hard. They control the outcomes of trade. Uh, I'm not sure who controls the outcomes uh, of Hong Kong. There's an article this morning in Foreign Affairs by one of your uh, private equity counterparts in Hong Kong uh, who suggests that the numbers uh, uh, would tell you that the U.S. is losing this battle, that the tariffs have been more um, damaging for our economy than they have been on the Chinese? Well, I think uh, this situation where um, um, the, the entire world is slowing in terms of economic growth. Mm -hmm. so, so in terms of who's winning or losing, that, that's sort of like not the point. Uh, the, the point is almost every economy in the world is slowing. When you get 35 to 40% of the world's economy sort of at loggerheads, uh, supply chains starting uh, to, to change and you know, technology types of um, intersections uh, going apart. Um, you know, the, the whole world, you know, it's sort of like when the parents are fighting, the, the children uh, get affected. And uh, you know, th th this at the moment has been sort of economically disadvantageous, uh, particularly in manufacturing. Manufacturing is going backwards, uh, literally every place in the world. And, and so, um, um, you know, I, I have difficulty describing who a, a winner uh, or loser is in that. There are a lot of losers. Anywhere in this. Um, do, you, do you at all worry that the relationship could, could actually come uh, completely apart? and uh, there would be a breakdown between the two countries uh, worse than we've already had? I, I don't think that's in uh, the long-term interests of, uh, of uh, the world. China was an early investor in uh, when you had the Blackstone IPO. Yeah. Are they still? No, I was completely unsolicited. I mean, I was stunned. Uh, I mean, how would you like somebody to show up and say, here's $3 billion? That's B with a B. I mean, I started out trying to get five million dollars. I thought that was great. Um, so, so this was an unsolicited um, approach by them, and 
at that time, uh, when we went public in 2007, we actually had two other countries do the same thing. So it was pretty flattering. Uh, and um, you know, we, we took the money from China because I, I thought that in, in the scale of uh, you know, sort of the global economy, there was gonna be nobody, uh, no other country like uh, China. And, and we, we, we actually did that with non-voting stock and no board representation because you know, I wanted to make sure we, we were run uh, independently without influence. Are they still investors in Blackstone? In, the Chinese, in Blackstone? In oh the no, they, they sold their stock I think after about six or eight years. One more trade question since uh, we're also looking down the road here. Do you expect there to be a, a Congress to approve NAFTA? What does what your crystal ball tell you? Uh, it's well, getting harder to get anything done. I, I, I'm wondering about that one. Well, you guys all live here, and you know it's, it's Washington. We're having you here today. And you know, I see that. people on television all the time, you know, with their crystal balls uh, and Ouija boards, and you don't you know, need one sort of, of. Just tell you know, us what I, you think. Uh, I, you know, and most of that stuff doesn't happen. Uh, it's it's hard to know what a Congress will do. Should uh, NAFTA, new NAFTA, USMCA, be approved? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, why? Uh, because it's in the interest of the United States. Uh, and, you know, there's a bunch of improvements from the previous NAFTA. And, and so why would you want to go back to something that isn't as good other than the fact that people down here will seem to have, like, some, some like, go ahead and say strange it. way of sometimes not doing things that are <laughs> to the advantage of, you know, sort of what someone outside would look at and say, why not do something that's good for you? Okay, uh, a little talk about politics before we finish. Democrats have been having a really robust conversation all year long about capitalism and socialism. Why haven't you guys, that's the capitalist team, um, won that argument better? Well, I think, I think it's for the same reason uh, that we mentioned earlier, that you have about a minimum 40% of the people in the country who, who are not having a, a good um, or expected uh, economic outcome. And, and when you have something like that, you always get, uh, regardless of what country, uh, where things happen of that type, you, you'll get populism. And that populism generates uh, anger, uh, and that anger gets directed. Uh, and um, usually uh, it doesn't end up solving a problem, but it does get people elected. Democrats, several of whom are running for president, want to levy a tax on wealth, not on income, on wealth. Yeah. Um, and the public at the moment favors this by a rate of two to one. Republicans are almost 50-50 on it um, in some, for some versions. Um, why isn't that a good way to address income inequality? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there are roughly, I think, 210 or 220 countries in the world, and only four of them are doing that. Now, why is that? It's because it doesn't work. Uh, if it worked really well, you'd have a lot of countries doing it. Uh, you've had countries that have tried to do it, which have given up on it, because it's very technically different, difficult. But on a practical level, um, it's, it's very discouraging when you do things like that uh, for, for people who want to start businesses. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, forget the individual numbers that different people are using uh, for that kind of tax, whether it's 1%, 2%, 3%. Um, 
but, but if you take somebody who comes to the United States or is in the United States and wants to start you know, a high-tech company, which is um, a, an area where we have enormous uh, uh, you know, advantages uh, ourselves in China, two countries. So, so usually those companies aren't very profitable, but they get valued highly if they're growing. So imagine you're the person who started it. It's your idea. Uh, you're, you're the next Steve Jobs, whatever. Uh, and you start, you get paid a few hundred thousand dollars. Your company has success. The company's worth a billion dollars. You're worth $300 million. So under this construct, you'd probably get hit with a 1% tax. So you're making 300,000, you're paying 150,000 of tax. You got 150,000 to live on. And then you got to come up with another $3 million to pay your 1% wealth tax. So uh, how exciting would that be? Uh, you know, you, you'd have no money uh, and because your stock's illiquid. Uh, and, and so um, I think if you went ahead with a plan like this, um, nobody would, would want to be subject to that who was trying to build something. And, and what, what I think would happen if you did that uh, is um, you'd have people who wanted to create uh, not come to the United States. Uh, because why would you? you you'd be in, the more money your company was worth, mm -hmm. the bigger your losses would be as a person. So, so I think what would end up happening uh, is that other countries uh, would um, basically uh, have free enterprise zones and, and they just invite you to go to their country uh, and, and you will divert major parts of the United States over time uh, to go someplace where people aren't uh, uh, penalized for, for starting businesses. So I, I, I've been thinking about this and it's, it's very easy to make these announcements without understanding the dynamism uh, of, of what would happen. Do you have an idea about what would do a, a, how we could address inequalities in a, in a more thoughtful way? I think I, I've been thinking about this a lot um, because we, we've got to address this problem. And I think you first of all have to start uh, by increasing the minimum wage uh, you know, to, to probably $15 adjusted for different parts of the country. Uh, it, it, it becomes a tax on the business community, uh, if you will. Uh, but uh, you know, that's about 15% of the workforce. Uh, and it, it would be an increase that was very substantial uh, for them. Uh, uh, you'd also have the people who, who were being paid between whatever today's minimum wage is and the $15. So all of those people would get a boost. So you probably have like 35% of the population, which is this, this group that really is um, having financial difficulties having increases. Uh, and uh, I think that's better than just transfer payments uh, because um, that way people would be working. Isn't it also uh, just unfair to tax regular income differently than capital gains? Well, that's an that's a, uh, argument for economists. Uh, and you know, since, since I've been in the workforce, which is, I guess, only been 50 years, even though I feel like I'm 38, um, uh, that um, 
there's always been uh, an advantageous position for capital. Uh, so the capital comes here and, and you know, capital is deployed. You could make uh, an alternative argument if, if, you, if you want. It just seems Blackstone's wealth is bad for tenants. Mm -hmm. It just seems spec. It just seems spectacularly. housing affordability crisis. You can't see it. Millions and millions of dollars. Stopping climate or stopping legislation, which is fueling homelessness and displacement. Schwartzman's wealth is built on the black backs of low-income and working-class communities. Schwartzman, shame on you. Please, if you guys. Steve, Steve, can you just go on here? It would be fair. Steve, um, if we could just continue. Um, one of the other issues that's come up in the last couple of weeks uh, isn't about economics, it's about uh, foreign intervention in our politics. Uh, the president actually said in the last couple of uh, weeks that he had spoken to you about um, the allegations against uh, uh, Hunter Biden. Uh, is that true? Did he speak to you about uh, talking I, to them with respect I, I, to China? I think I'm on the record on that. You are. And what did you say? Well, I'm on the record. You, I think someone spoke for you saying you hadn't spoken to him about that. Is that accurate? Uh, that's what I said. Okay. Um, has he ever asked you to intervene in, in uh, domestic political matters I, with the Chinese? I, I didn't even know there was a Hunter Biden. Um, well, I appreciate you taking that, that one. Uh, is there a... Uh, Talk about private equity for a minute. Also, it's one of the, it's gotten a, a bad rap because of uh, buyouts like you know Win Dixie and Sears, not your company, um, uh, but particularly in retail, uh, private equity has been very tough on the news business, and you know in particularly um, our line of work. Uh, Elizabeth Warren wants to regulate private equity differently. She wants to. Um, um, make uh, you guys keep more, uh, take less cash out of the companies, uh, treat the debt differently. Um, what does she have wrong uh, when it comes to uh, her proposal to regulate private equity? It's not the only proposal, but it's the one that. Yeah, I, I think um, you know you, you have to start with with the reality uh, of how the U.S. economy works. Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. economy has roughly about 151 uh, million jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, 66 million people uh, leave their job uh, in a year. This is like incredibly dynamic. And they leave to either retire, they leave to change jobs. Uh, they leave because they're fired. Right. The number of people in the United States in a year who are fired are 21 million. The number of total jobs in private equity is 11 million. So. If, if, if you had 10% of the jobs in, in private equity, 
uh, reduced, which you don't, mm -hmm. um, uh, that would be less than, that would be a million jobs. There's still 20 million jobs that, that people are fired from. And, and so the idea of signaling out one small group, which, which over time has no job loss, uh, with 21 million people being fired a year by, by say it's 20, right. by non-private equity jobs, it's, it's really almost nonsensical to be doing that analytically. Uh, and, and so um, what private equity does is we buy companies, we fix them up, uh, we try and make them grow faster because the faster they grow, the higher the valuation you can get, and the faster they grow, the more earnings you have. So it's a, it's a double benefit. We put some leverage on those companies. The companies don't go bankrupt any more than regular companies, and we end up earning double the stock market. So there have been huge flows into this because when these companies grow, you, you also hire more people because you can't run companies without people. Uh, and the faster you grow, the more the people. So basically, this is a very good thing. And, and the reason why, why large institutions who basically represent people's retirements, right? Government workers, uh, policemen, firemen, teachers, and, and others, um, continually to put more money in this asset class because this asset class ends up being good for America. It's good for them. It's good for the people. It's the top performing asset class for all of these uh, individuals uh, and, and, and institutions. So, so the idea of basically signaling this out when the numbers don't even make any rational sense uh, because you have one company that has a problem. I wish nobody had problems. That's not the way the economy works if 21 million people are being fired a year. Uh, and you lose 6,000 jobs, and a politician announces that as if it's the only jobs that are being lost in America. Um, you know, I'm not in favor of anybody losing their job, obviously, but if there are 21 million people doing it, uh, and, and this is a very small segment of that, mm -hmm. um, what's going on in the rest of the country? What's going on is this is how a dynamic economy works. We only have a few minutes left. Um, you have moved uh, much more dramatically in recent years into philanthropy, um, uh, particularly in New York City and, of course, overseas with the scholars. Um, I'm wondering, uh, it's been controversial in recent years about how effective philanthropy can be. Mm -hmm. um, it's been criticized, of course, sometimes for uh, individuals uh, who uh, are trying to overcome other things that happen in their lives. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you, um, how you plan your own uh, giving over the rest of your life. Uh, some people have said they want to give it all away. Are you are you a give it all away person, or are you uh, are you have a plan that, to take it a different direction? No, no. I, you know, I leave some to my family and basically give most of it away. Do you have a uh, some direction you want to go with it in in the main, well, or have you thought about it? Well, I'm I'm very focused on education. Um, I went to public school, uh, and um, I went to two great universities after that. Uh, you know, my schooling made a huge difference to me. If, if, if I hadn't gone to the kind of public school I did, 
I, I wouldn't be uh, sitting uh, on the, on this platform uh, today. So, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I support both universities in special areas. I'm very interested in artificial intelligence and making sure that's introduced in, in a way uh, that's, uh, that's good for society. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I've given a lot of money to um, Catholic schools, even though I'm not Catholic, uh, because they have amazing outcomes. Uh, you know, sort of 70% uh, of the students are in New York are below the poverty line. Uh, and 90% um, are minorities, and 98% of them graduate. 96% go to college. So, so I'm a great believer in, in giving people uh, the opportunities uh, to, to have a better life. That's all the time we have for today. I wanna, uh, for today, I, I wanna thank you, Steve, for taking time, uh, uh, the good and the bad today. Uh, for being our guest. Uh, we do outside have copies of Steve's book. Uh, um, it's a great book, uh, uh, particularly if you uh, uh, know someone who's 25 or 30 and just starting out, um, and uh, so I can recommend it. Uh, if you'd like to watch today's interview in playback, please head over to WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Michael Duffy, and thanks for joining us today. Steve, thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.